The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. invite you to take your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 19 to 31. Acts 9, verses 19 to 31. And be, as you're finding your place, I want to sketch out what's happening in the book of Acts and where we are in chapter 9, partway through chapter 9. Acts, as you well know, describes... Oh, I'm sorry, Sharon. All the Sunday school kids, you can go with Sharon now. Sorry about that. Acts, as you know, describes Christ's continuing mission to spread the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth through his apostles and the disciples. Dr. Luke describes Peter's leadership from Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 8, and the mission there is predominantly to the Jews. And then Luke turns in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31, to Saul's conversion and his early ministry to the Hebrew and the Hellenistic Jews. Luke then returns in Acts 9 and verses 32 to 43 to Peter's ministry in Lydda and Joppa, healing Aeneas and then raising Dorcas from death. And then he's given that great vision on the rooftop of the unclean animals who have been made clean and included with all the clean animals. And Peter is sent to meet Cornelius, and there as he begins to preach the gospel, uh, the Holy Spirit falls and the Gentiles there are saved. And then in chapter 11, he reports back to the Jerusalem elders and the apostles there about the Gentile conversion. And that... (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) There we go. And that opens the way for the gospel mission to go to the Gentiles. And it's that mission that in Acts chapter 13, that Barnabas and Saul, who will be called Paul for most of his life, they're called to it. So from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 12, Peter leads the mission mostly to the Jews, and including the Ethiopian eunuch and the Cornelius and so on. And then from Acts chapter 13 all the way to the end, Paul sort of leads the mission mostly to the Gentiles, and the gospel is spreading from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile. Just as Paul says in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. And it's in that context that our passage sits, introducing us to what... uh, to Saul's Christ-centered ministry and what it will be like for those later chapters. Well, you might ask, how do you know and why do you say it's a Christ-centered ministry? What's, where do you get that from the text? Well, the text repeatedly focuses on Saul's communicating of Christ to people. In verse 20, Saul proclaimed that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 22, Saul proved that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 28, he spoke out boldly in the Lord's name. And then in verse 29, Saul is speaking and arguing with the Hellenistics 
Hellenists about Christ. And it's not just Saul who exercises this sort of ministry. It's not just reserved for the apostles. It's all of us. We are also called to a Christ-centered, Christ-proclaiming ministry. The Lord gives us in this text an example, an illustration for how our ministry should and how it must operate as believers in Christ, sharing the gospel. Ministry must have a Christ-centered context in which it operates. Our ministry must be biblically practiced, and our focus in ministry must be on Christ as its sole content. So we have their context, practice, and content. If you grab one of these little purple sheets on the way in, you'll have an outline and the sermon text there in front of you. Let's read together Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 19, or just partway through. You might have a paragraph break, uh, partway through verse 19. Let's read down to the end of the chapter. And the Word of God says, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? And Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, and their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus." And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And so in verse 31, we read that summary. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. I want us to notice this morning three things. The content of a Christ-centered ministry, the practice of a Christ-centered ministry, and the context, and we'll start with the context. That context of a Christ-centered ministry comes from a godly, repentant minister or servant. In verse 21, we can see Saul's repentant heart and mind and life. Even his opponents recognized it and were amazed at the change they saw in Saul. Saul had had his mind changed by Christ back in the earlier part of the chapter. On the road, Jesus had revealed himself to Saul as Lord, meaning as God. 
So although Saul once considered Jesus nothing more than a blaspheming carpenter rabbi from Nazareth, now Saul sees and believes and is convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, God's anointed prophet, priest, and king. And we're going to unpack those at the end. Saul has had his heart changed by God from hating Christ to loving Christ and desiring to know Christ, to be like Christ. Uh, Friday night, we were here with our last night of the prayer week, and we were just considering that great passage in Philippians 3. Paul says, I've given up everything in the world that I might know Christ. He was a man who had a repentant, a changed heart and life before God. Saul had had his heart changed from hating Christ to loving Christ. Saul had consequently changed his actions and behavior from being a zealous Pharisee to now being a zealous apostle, from persecuting Christ to preaching Christ, from hating Christians to joining and them and loving them and serving together with them. Saul, his heart, mind, and life were repentant before God. He had a complete and total change of heart and mind and life. But notice also in verse 22, the text says that Saul kept increasing in strength. He was increasing in spiritual things. He was growing in spiritual wisdom and understanding. He was growing in his confidence to preach Christ. So the context of Saul's Christ-centered ministry is, first of all, a repentant life. That change of heart and mind and action must be ours also. Brothers and sisters, we've said it before. Genuine saving faith, genuine conversion is not merely a change of mind and a change of actions. It's a change of the whole person. Heart, mind, life, loves Actions, it's all changed to focus on Christ, to trust in Christ, to obey and follow Christ. And Paul exemplifies that. Saul, who became Paul, exemplifies that all through his life and ministry from that point of conversion onwards. But notice something else here. A Christ-centered ministry comes from the context of a church. Notice in verse 19 that it says that Saul was with the disciples In verse 26, the Bible says that Saul was trying to associate with the Jerusalem disciples. In verse 28, it says that he was with those same disciples. Saul devoted himself to fellowship within the church and with disciples, fellow disciples. He followed the pattern of Acts 2.42, devoting himself to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. You go ahead to Acts chapter 11, you see it's from the church in Antioch that Barnabas and Saul were sent out with a contribution to the disciples in Judea. In Acts chapter 12, they returned to the church in Antioch to minister there for some time. In Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul were set apart by the Holy Spirit during a time of prayer and fasting within the Antioch church fellowship. And in Acts 14, what do we see? Paul and Barnabas returning, uh, sorry, sorry, in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas return and they report to the Antioch church. Why? Because Paul saw himself as accountable to the established church. 
In Galatians 2, Paul submitted himself and his gospel to the Jerusalem church elders in fear that perhaps he had been running and ministering in vain. And the context of Saul's ministry was always from within a church. He was called and commissioned by Christ to be an apostle of Christ, but he was sent by the church, or I should say, and he was sent by the church. He was accountable to the church. He submitted himself to the church elders. Brothers and sisters, any kind of ministry we do for Christ is always to be set in the context of the local church. Scripture never considers the lone wolf approach to ministry. The biblical principle of discipleship requires an accountability for all the church's elders, pastors, leaders, servants, missionaries, all of them. And you have no idea how painful that lesson was for me. I'll never forget sitting in the Sunday school over there when it was my office before we did all these changes and I was doing some administration work, folding or stapling or something, and I had a Q&A session going on, and there's Al Moeller, and there's uh, Mark Dever, and a bunch of other guys, I think it's uh, Together for the Gospel, and they're reading through all the distinctives of that organization, and one of the things that Al Moeller said, and I literally just dropped what I was doing, my mouth hit the desk in shock. He said, we never consider the lone wolf approach to ministry. It's always in the context of an accountability to a church. You say, why would that make you so shocked? Because the church we had tried to plant in Casey was just that. And although God added tremendous blessing, we saw people saved. We saw, I had the tremendous thrill of seeing a young lady come in, the girlfriend of an unbelieving man who brought her in. He left, she stayed, she got saved. We baptized her. Uh, we, I had a hand in her marriage, marrying her to a Christian young guy. And we just went over to their place for dinner and she told us that she's expecting a baby. God had tremendous blessing, but you know what? Lone wolf approach to ministry, going off and doing your own thing. That is not the biblical way. And Paul conducts his ministry in the context of a local church. So are we to do the same. Notice also the context of a Christ-centered ministry is also to the saved and to the lost. You can see here he's going out and he's preaching the gospel in the synagogues. They don't know Christ as Savior, so he preaches and proclaims Christ to those who have the Old Testament scriptures, have all they need to understand and know who Jesus is, and he still goes and proclaims the gospel to them. We know later as he goes on that he's arrested and imprisoned and transferred to Rome. And during that latter part of his ministry, what's he spending his time doing? Playing cards in the cell with the guards? No, he's got paper and pen out and he's writing one letter after another. And his ministry, his Christ-centered ministry, is now almost entirely to believers as he preaches not preaches, as he uh, writes biblical truth to be shared with the churches. But what's he doing while he's doing that? He's chained to a guard. Poor guard. Guard think he was in control. No, no, no. He was chained to Saul, and Saul was telling him about the gospel. And you hear in some of those writings about how some of the guards came to know Christ as Savior. So the context of our ministry isn't just to the believer, and it isn't exclusively to the unbeliever. There's always a mix of both. I won't take more of that, but I'm just going to keep moving for the sake of time. 
I want you to notice also that a Christ-centered ministry is in the face of opposition and persecution. If you notice in verse 22 what he says there, that Saul confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Christ. That aroused their antagonism to the point of plotting his murder. In verse 29, Saul was arguing with the Hellenists, clearly arguing about Christ. That raised their antagonism also to the point of plotting murder. And all through his ministry, as it unfolds in the book of Acts, Paul faces opposition. He faced opposition from the Jews who refused Jesus as Messiah. He faced opposition from the Judaizers who argued that Gentiles must convert to Judaism and accept Mosaic law, circumcision, and so on, in order to be saved. And you know what? Little's changed in the 2,000 years since then. We may not see opposition to the gospel from devout Jews, but we certainly see opposition to the gospel in all other forms. We see the discarding of gospel truth. Repentance is put aside. Sin is put aside. Hell is put aside. Judgment's put aside. The gospel in our day has been reshaped by the larger church to be a means to health and wealth and prosperity, to make your already good life just a little bit better. How much that must raise the anger of God when he sees that. We see the gospel being redefined, redefining gospel truths. Conversions put aside. Justification is thrown aside. Sanctification is all mixed up. They're redefining things to make it acceptable to the modern man. And there is opposition against the gospel in that sense. The preaching of the gospel will always be met with opposition. Whenever truth is proclaimed, the enemy will arouse opposition. And the saddest thing is, sometimes, I have to add that, oftentimes it comes from within the church, but it also comes from outside the church. What's the answer to it? Just like Saul, who became Paul, did all through his ministry, he graciously, steadfastly, determinedly, prayerfully resisted it. He preached biblical truth in support of the gospel truth. He used his transformed lifestyle as the evidence of what the gospel can do. And we are to do the same. They come against and say, no, no, no. Forget this hell thing. It's too, it's too nasty. It's owie. Let's not talk about hell. Let's talk about love. Well, let's talk about love. God's love for his glory, God's love for his holiness, God's love for his word. Let's talk about God's love for us as well. Let's not forget hell, because without the terribly bad news of hell, the gospel's great good news of salvation is that much more diminished. We talk about hell, repentance. I had a great long argument. I couldn't believe it. With an elder in a church, you can't preach repentance for salvation. I said, why not? Jesus did. No, 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 no. That, that's works. You, that comes much later. I said, no, 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 no. A thousand times no. We preach repentance and faith for salvation. So the gospel is going to be opposed. But also happens is occasionally opposition becomes open persecution. In verse 23, the Damascus Jews plotted to put Saul to death. In verse 29, the Hellenistic Jews again plot to put Saul to death. 
And in both 20, verses 24 and 30, right after those two, Saul became aware of the plots and escaped. How? Because God is sovereignly in control of this man's life, of everything. God sovereignly, repeatedly delivered Saul from persecution. God also delivered Saul through persecution and death and into glory. Saul gave his back to be flogged five times and beaten with rods three times. Saul gave his body to be stoned. He was shipwrecked three times. He was imprisoned multiple times, totaling approximately five years of his life. And ultimately, Saul gave his life to a sword blow and martyrdom. And God sovereignly delivered him through persecution and death and into glory. And brothers and sisters, here's where we hear God's word, God's voice speaking to us right from the text. God says to you and I today, just as I delivered Saul from persecution in his early ministry, so also I will deliver you. I will deliver you from immediate persecution or I will deliver you through that persecution and death into glory. No no wonder Paul could write years later in Romans 8, What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And he answers it, not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, nor anything. And we see the beginning of the reality of that lived out in his life here in this early stories about his own ministry. God sovereignly made their plots known to Saul and the brethren. So brothers and sisters this morning, and we are coming into an un- before seen phase of Christian life in Australia. Laws are being enacted and passed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, here's the call from us. Just like they were provoked to the point of plotting for his death, so men and women in our day will be provoked to plotting for our death, our demise. It's already happening. What do we do? We trust him. We be faithful to the ministry he's called us to do. And in the context of a gospel-centered, Christ-centered ministry, from a godly, repentant life, we preach the gospel. From within a Christ-centered fellowship, we go out and we preach the gospel. We preach it to the saved and the unsaved. We preach it in the face of opposition and persecution. We keep preaching it. Why? Because as Paul said in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Well, notice the second main point. Look at this very briefly. The practice of of a Christ-centered ministry. Notice it says in verse 19, he immediately began to preach in synagogues. Now, in Galatians 1, Paul says that after Christ called him and revealed his son in him, he did not confer with anyone, but went to Arabia and then sometime later returned to Damascus. Now, Luke doesn't incorporate that bit of information into his account. So we take Luke's written account as absolutely sure, recognizing that somehow those two accounts fit together and work together. How they do, we're not sure. But here we have the word of God telling us that he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. And the word means an authoritative pronouncement of Christ and the gospel. Literally, it means a loud public announcement. I'm benefited by those two black things up there and one that you can't see down below making my voice loud. 
probably louder than it needs to be most days. But you know what? In those days, they stood up and they shouted with a great shout and they made a proclamation of good news. They heralded the gospel. Saul spoke under Christ's authority to the Jews, his own people. He spoke with authority as Christ called and commissioned apostle. He proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ and we must do the same. We speak under Christ's all-encompassing authority and we speak with the authority of holy inspired scripture. So long as our message, our ministry is faithful to the text of Scripture, it goes out with the authority of Christ. Saul's ministry and ours is to preach Christ. But notice also in verse 22, it says that Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this, and I have Jesus in italics, it's not in the original text, that this is the Christ, and it points back to, to Jesus. Saul was proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Saul was a well-trained Pharisee, and they were used to memorizing great passages of Scripture, knowing with precision most of the Old Testament. Now, having learned that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, he proves that Jesus is the Messiah of God. So what's the difference between proving and proclaiming? Well, proving means to establish a truth by argumentation and reasoning, to examine and compare, to bring them together, like a skilled weaver weaving colored threads together to create a beautiful picture and pattern. So we bind together the threads of Scripture to display a beautiful, compelling picture of the glory of Jesus Christ is to use logic and rationale and reasoning to argue. We, we don't just plead for dumb faith. We plead for an educated faith. Don't leave your brain at the door when you walk in here. God, in his wisdom, gave us a word, a book that's put together in reasoned logic. But it also comes with the absolute authority of God. It has the authority to command us to do what it does command. But we also prove from Scripture the truth of the gospel. So the practice of a Christ-centered ministry is both to proclaim the gospel with biblical authority and to prove rationally and logically from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed of God, the Savior of sinners, and the coming judge of all mankind. Brothers and sisters, I'll say it again. So long as we are faithful to the text of Scripture, whose subject and content is our Lord Jesus Christ, so long as we add nothing to the gospel message, nor take nothing away from it, so long as Christ's glory is our goal, it will be a Christ-centered ministry, just as Saul and Paul's was. I wish I'd remembered to bring it. Uh, My wife gave me a lovely framed, uh, not a picture, it's kind of a text, not a Bible text. And what it is, is when Spurgeon finished building the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he went up into the pulpit the first Sunday morning, and he made this pronouncement. So long as God would... This is not the act of words, but this was the sense of it. So long as God would give him breath, he would preach Christ from that pulpit. That was his, uh, 
his statement, his conviction. And brothers, it's the same with us. So long as God allows us to, so long as I have strength to draw a breath and push a word out, we'll preach Christ and him crucified. That leads us right into the last point I want to make. The content of a Christ-centered ministry. Saul preached Christ and him crucified in 1 Corinthians 2. He finished 1 Corinthians 15 by doing what? By giving the, the statement of the greatest importance to this established church. And what was it? The gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Notice that Saul proclaims in verse number 20 that Jesus is the Son of God. And in six simple words, we have the profound truth of the person of Christ, the God-man, truly God and truly man. And all the way through the service this morning, this is the part I wanted to get to. Looking forward to this part more than anything else. If you forget everything I just said up to this point, well, sad, but okay. But remember what I say from this point onwards. This is the important part. The gospel content is Jesus Christ. He is Jesus, truly human. Paul's words give us, in six simple words, a profound truth of the person of Christ. He is Jesus, truly human. He was conceived in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was in the womb eight to nine months, just as any other normal pregnancy. He grew from infant to child to youth to manhood, all of it in submission to his parents. He learned to speak, to write, to practice the trade of carpentry. He knew pain and tiredness, and sorrow, and loss, and hunger, and thirst. He knew both tears and laughter. He knew friendship and loyalty, as well as betrayal and disloyalty. He knew temptation beyond that which any other man would or could ever know, and yet without even the possibility of sin. He was, in every way, human as any other human, with this exception, without sin. He understands, brother and sister in Christ. He understands every difficulty and every trial and every struggle that every one of us can or will experience with the exception of the humiliation for his own sin committed by him because he never committed sin. He knows our hurts, our sorrows, our pain, our weariness. And today he calls us, he calls you, brother and sister, to come to him, to find relief, to find rest, to find forgiveness and reconciliation with God. If you're here for no other reason, hear this. He is truly human. And he is also the son of God. And that was Saul's message to the Jews. He is God. Truly God. He has the same essence as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is God with every attribute of deity that his Father has. He is God both eternal and unchangeable. That's why it's impossible for Jesus to commit sin. If Jesus could change from sinless to sinner, his divine person as God would be neither eternal nor unchanging. It's impossible. He is God all-powerful and all-knowing, as God the Father and God the Spirit is. He is God absolutely holy and righteous and just, just as the Father is. He is God, good, 
He is good with grace and mercy and kindness and compassion. He is God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, without beginning and without any end. He is God ruling and reigning as supreme sovereign God on high. You can't fire him. He cannot be impeached. He will not resign and he's never going to retire. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. He is God all glorious with the glory he had with the Father before creation and returned to him after his resurrection. He is God to whom the angels are unceasing in praise and worship. This Jesus is the Son of Almighty God. And as passionate as I want to be, because to me this truth is the greatest truth ever given to us in pen and in hearing and voice and sung, however you want to communicate it. My tiny incomplete summary barely scratches the surface of who this Jesus Christ is. He was the content of Saul's Christ-centered ministry. And brothers and sisters, Christ must be the content of our ministry. I was Friday morning, no, yeah, Friday morning, came in a bit later. I was tired from the week, and I went over and had a coffee with Rod, and we got chatting about this. And he said, you know, R.C. Sproul, a great Presbyterian theologian, was asked, what's the world's greatest need? And he said, oh, it's Jesus Christ. They said, well, then what is the church's greatest need? And he said, well, that's Jesus Christ. That's the answer to everybody's problem inside the church and outside the church. Christ was the content of Saul's ministry to saved and unsaved. Christ will be the content of ours. But you know what? There's even more. The content of our ministry is not only the person of Christ, it's also the work of Christ. Why would the Son of God be willing to take on flesh and blood, to be humbled, to humble himself, to suffer, to die? He did so, so that he could fulfill his work, his ministry. Saul was proving in verse 22 that this Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed of God. Three roles in the Old Testament were anointed. And Christ is the answer and fulfillment of all three. In the Old Testament, there was anointed prophets. And Jesus Christ is the anointed prophet of God, speaking God's word to us. He came as the ultimate revelation of God in human flesh to all the world. God spoke in Son to us. Hebrews chapter 1. He came and explained and expounded God the Father to us. He came and spoke the words of eternal life to us. He came and called us to repentance and belief. He spoke the truth to us because we have all gone astray. We have all sinned against God. We've all defied and trampled upon God's holy name. We have ignored God and denied God and disregarded God and defied God. And Christ came and spoke as God's prophet to command us to repent of sin, to believe the gospel, and to follow Christ. Secondly, he came as the anointed high priest of God. And brothers and sisters, we all need a priest We all need someone to go on our behalf to reconcile us to God with whom we are estranged. We need someone to go and soothe, to placate, to exhaust the anger of God against us. 
And do not kid yourself for a split second. God's love for you does not negate or push aside his anger with you for your sin. For me, for my sin. For we who have all sinned can only offer to God our immortal souls to be tormented forever in hell as payment for our sin. Meaning that being for eternity separated and forsaken by God. Jesus is the Christ who came to be our high priest. He is the Christ who came to offer himself in our place to pay our death penalty for us that we might be reconciled to God. He is the Christ, the anointed high priest of God. He offered himself as the sacrifice for sin and he intercedes for his people with the Father even now. Whenever we take communion, we take a little cup of juice, And I sit there and I think about that little cup of juice, blood that was shed for me. Now, I know, I'm absolutely convinced that the suffering of the Savior on the cross had far more to do with the agony of his soul than the the nails and the spear and so on. But as a clumsy carpenter who has once put a nail right through his own thumb, it's funny to you do it, (laughs) often take that little cup of juice and I just think about what it would have been like to have a seven-inch Roman nail driven through the base of my wrist and the unbearable pain that he endured for you and me. Why? That that nail, the blood that was shed, the horrible excruciating, we get that word from the cross, Suffering of the, of the Savior was to placate the anger of God against you and me, to provide an atonement for our sin. Brothers and sisters, we need to preach Christ. We need to preach the blood. We need to preach the death, the suffering, repentance, all of it. Because it's all, it's all part of that great gospel story. And when we understand and begin to appreciate just what Christ has endured for us, It changes our perspective entirely. He came to be our high priest. He came to be the Lamb of God, as was pointed out earlier, to offer himself in our place, to pay our death penalty for us, that we might be reconciled to God. He is the Christ, the anointed high priest of God. He offers himself as a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. And he intercedes with his father for us. Notice thirdly, he is the Christ, the anointed king of all kings. He rules and reigns from his father's throne on high. He as king will also serve as the great judge of all creation. In the Old Testament, you read the stories, okay, you pick up a little line that says, and the king sat in the gates. What does that mean? That mean much from our perspective, but in that day and age, it meant something quite significant. When the king sat in the gates, that was the place of the law courts. And the people would come in and they would make charges and hear disputes. And the king would render the verdict. And Jesus Christ is God's anointed king and judge to save and condemn. My friends, please listen. If Jesus the Christ is not your Savior when he returns, he 
is your judge. And you cannot make a plea bargain. If Jesus the Christ is not your Savior now, then he is now your enemy and you are his enemy. He will vindicate his name. He does it two ways. He vindicates his name in the preaching of the gospel to proclaim his name as Savior. But he also vindicates his name as judge when he condemns the guilty, the godless, those who refuse to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. He will receive his glory from his enemies. He'll deal with his enemies in justice and condemnation to an unrelenting torment in hell. You say, how dare you bring up hell in a day like today, in this day and age? What is it about this day and age when the truth, the reality of hell should be put aside for something a little more comfortable? Because I assure you, One millisecond into hell, you will wish you had listened and heard all those days earlier. He will declare, if this doesn't cause us to stop and shudder, something wrong with us. He will declare to those who do not trust in Christ, who are not repenting of sin, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the question that ought to be going through every one of our minds, for those who already know the answer in rejoicing and joy, and for those who don't know the answer in desperation, how is it that anyone can escape such a pronouncement? And Jesus' first words of ministry record in Mark 1, 15 to 17, give us the three answers exactly as we need them. Repent. That's his first word as he preached. Beg your pardon. He did say the kingdom, a time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. Repent. That was the first command he preached. Turn away from sin. That's the call of God on all of us. Whether you've known Christ for 50 years or you don't yet know Christ, the call on all of us today is to repent. Turn away from sin. Turn away from disobeying God to obeying him. Turn fully to Christ in faith that he will keep his word and save you from his own judgment and wrath. And his second word goes alongside. They can't be split apart. Believe the gospel. Trust in Christ to save you. He calls you to come to him, to all who are weary and heavy laden, loaded down with sin, and he will give you rest. He calls you to receive his offer of forgiveness. We talk about the grace of God. And sometimes we erroneously make the concept across that it will last forever. In a certain sense, it's unlimited grace. But there will come a day when God will withdraw his grace and say, no more. He calls us, brothers and sisters, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and to follow him. To walk as he walked, to live as he lived, to live serving and loving and following him. It means taking up the cross, denying myself, putting aside my wants and my desires and my my pleas, my self-centeredness, and saying, not I, but Christ. As Paul could write near the end of his life, end of his life, sorry, before his death, for me to live. And there's no is in the Greek. It just says, for me to live, 
Christ. To die again. And he understood it. Because in that moment on the road, as he lay there before the exalted Lord, everything changed for him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, my desire this morning is to exalt and lift up Christ, that you might through the eyes of faith behold him and so be changed to pick up your cross and follow him. What will you do with this message? What's your response going to be to what we've talked about? And I have an absolute conviction that God speaks to us when Scripture is proclaimed. What is He saying to you this morning? We're going to do something that we haven't done for quite a long time, a couple years. I'm going to just sit down for a few moments. I'm going to ask you all to be completely quiet. Bow your head and pray. If there's nothing that you need to talk to the Lord about, which I doubt, then out of respect for others, would you just be quiet? So we can take a few moments in our own lives, each of us before the Lord, to reflect and respond. In a few moments, I'll come and close in prayer.
There is a beautiful old hymn that goes like this. Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills my breast. But sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. Nor voice, nor can sing, nor heart can frame, nor can the memory find a sweeter sound than thy blessed name, O Savior of mankind. O hope of every contrite heart, O joy of all the meek, to those who fall, how kind thou art, how good to those who seek. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just give thanks this morning for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you and we worship you, O God, this morning for your holiness, for the unchanging, unchangeableness of your person, your promises and your purposes. Father, we give thanks that you have accomplished the greatest work of all to save sinners. Father, too, for the judgment that is coming when Christ will return. His sheep will be gathered to him and the goats sent away. Father, we pray we plead with you, O God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will take the word of God and impress it and apply it upon every heart and every mind in this room, everyone that hears this message. Father, we ask you that you would do a great work to save sinners. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love for us. Most of all, O God, we thank you for our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you all. We are done.